Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out Swiss and European fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Chiara, who is a PhD graduate from Bocconi and uh, will become an assistant professor of entrepreneurship at INSEAD from September in Singapore. And we're going to talk about the never-ending question. Can you teach entrepreneurship? Can you learn it in school? Is this helpful to take any entrepreneurship classes or not? Or is it, are you just left to luck and uh, trial and error. So welcome, Chiara. Thank you very much for joining. And can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Why have you become an academic and especially in entrepreneurship? Sure. First of all, it's a pleasure to be on the Voice of Fintech. I am originally Italian and I spent the last 10 years between London, Milan and Dubai, where I pretty much led a double life. So in my first life, I'm a researcher, and as part of my doctoral research, I've been examining whether there is such a thing as the science of entrepreneurship. So I'm particularly interested in what I consider to be the hardest phase of entrepreneurship, which is when entrepreneurs have an initial intuition for a new business and need to decide what to do to develop that intuition. In my second life instead, I have been involved in entrepreneurial ecosystems. So I started as a managing director of pre-acceleration programs. And then about two years ago, I co-founded a program in London that was funded by the UK government. So in this capacity, I work with 800 entrepreneurs to put into practice insights from my research and educate entrepreneurs on the methods, tools, and framework that they can use to really get their business up and running. And as you said, I'm just about to move to Singapore to join INSEAD. As, as we mentioned, you recently got a PhD in management at Bocconi and you will join INSEAD from September. So what are your goals for the first year? Uh, what do you want to achieve at INSEAD when you join? So in the past few months, uh, I have been working closely with the INSEAD team to actually take on a new challenge. So as I mentioned, in the last few years, I've developed an expertise on startups and the methods that startups can use successfully. So what I'm doing right now is that I'm transitioning into corporate entrepreneurship and translating the approach to innovation for startups that I developed as part of my research and taking that to the corporate world. So in my first year at INSEAD, I'm redesigning the course on corporate entrepreneurship to enrich it with new and actionable tools that corporate can use to innovate like startups. So I would say that to put it more simply, I'll be focusing on what established firms can do to be more entrepreneurial. And this includes a wide range of options, which includes kickstarting a culture of scientific-like experimentation or opening the innovation process to outsiders. 
Right. Well, let's zoom into the key question that I have, right? Which is, you know, can you teach entrepreneurship? And if you can, then uh, what's the method that you use? Uh, naturally, you would think about the case study method that, as you use in business schools. But uh, is that complemented by the traditional teaching, you know, which you, you probably know from the continental European universities where the professor stands up and he, and he or she, they are the, the well of wisdom and nobody is allowed to question them. So how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile the two? Can you teach the entrepreneurship? Or, and uh, if yes, then how? Yes, this is a great question. Uh, there's been a long debate to determine if entrepreneurs are born or made. And I would say that the answer is that entrepreneurs are both born and made. So if you think about it, entrepreneurship is a combination of traits and skills like technical skills, creativity, leadership, strategic thinking, and so on and so forth. But is there a learnable and teachable core to entrepreneurship? So what I found is that you can teach entrepreneurs a repeatable method and an architecture that they can use every time they face uh, systematic problems so that they can solve the bottlenecks that they face with their business. So this is what I call the scientific approach, and it is at the core what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurial, if you will. So having a structured approach to develop their business. Uh, in terms of the best teaching method, I'm a huge fan of the case study tradition that you mentioned, but I feel that case studies are great at showcasing a practical applications of a framework. So what I found particularly effective when teaching entrepreneurship in different pre-acceleration programs is to bring the case study method to life. So how do you do that? You ask each entrepreneur to use their business as a live case study. So you essentially provide some theory, some basic frameworks and tools that they can use, and then you get them to apply these tools right away to their business. So more than when you're teaching strategy or other business-related disciplines, it is fundamental to offer a direct application of tools to one business. In other words, in order to learn entrepreneurship, you have to do entrepreneurship. But teaching entrepreneurship should not be all about practice and no theory. So on the other hand, entrepreneurship really requires a set of practices, and these practices are I found firmly grounded in theory. So it is important to find a balance between theory and practice and use hands-on action-based activities that can enhance learning rather than this traditional European-style methods that you just mentioned. And, you know, some people describe startups and early stage ventures as learning vehicles. And what that means is that the decision making in such an environment has a huge impact, right? So can you bring any science into decision making in early stage ventures and uh, therefore improve the odds of your survival or success even? There is a lot of evidence. And here I'm thinking about research, but also plenty of examples that shows that entrepreneurs are not systematic, let alone scientific, in how they make decisions. And this is because there is huge variation in how entrepreneurs collect information on their business. So recently, there's been a large survey of the American population, and the scholars find that individuals starting a new business take surprisingly few steps, and even low-cost steps such as speaking to a friend about their business idea. But how can you make informed decision about your business if you have no information in the first place? Clearly, gathering feedback and information about the prospects of a business and key choices related to the business is crucial. So this is what entrepreneurs do when they experiment. They gather feedback and information on their ideas in various ways. 
which includes talking to customers, running A-B testing, and, and all that jazz. Of course, there are different types of experiments, and learning from small one-off experiments can help. But what I've seen by working with hundreds of entrepreneurs is that the key is really to take time to study the situation, frame the problem face very clearly, develop hypotheses, and engage in continuous experimentation. So this is essentially a scientific approach to entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurs, what they do when they use this approach, they use a method that is similar to the one used by scientists. We clearly develop theories, hypotheses, and tests of these hypotheses, and this is very beneficial for entrepreneurs. It is not easy, but there are steps that entrepreneurs can follow, even if using this methodology, the scientific approach, does not in itself guarantee survival and success. So to answer your second question, it does provide a basis for learning how to pivot in a precise manner. And it can help entrepreneurs improve the product or service that they offer to customers. So the research I conducted with various colleagues shows that entrepreneurs who use this approach are more precise in the changes they make to their business and that they can also make three to five times the amount of revenue that entrepreneurs make when they do not use this approach. And uh, well, let's turn up the difficulty a bit and talk about financial services, right? Because... uh... How do you experiment in a highly regulated industry? Early on, I think the fintechs were trying to tackle the parts of the value chain which are actually not regulated, right? Or they are very lightly regulated. But as they grow, sometimes they obviously try to uh, venture into other areas and uh, expand their product universe, which sometimes requires the banking license and all other licenses or regulations that they need to follow. So how can you apply your method or experimentation as a principle in an industry like this, which um, is not really fond of uh, experiments? I'm not an expert on the subject of regulation, but in general, regulation is there to protect customers and stakeholders and not to stifle experimentation. So experimentation is about adjusting a product or a service based on the feedback gathered. So there are lots of examples of companies that found creative ways to solve persistent problems by following regulation. Of course, if you are building a new business in a regulated industry, this means that there are probably high barriers to entry, right? But the opportunity can be huge. So I would say that if entrepreneurs have a smart solution to a real business problem and they can take a creative approach by working within the legal framework, then they can experiment successfully. And in particular, I've seen that having an industry expert on board can be extremely helpful when entrepreneurs are looking to experiment in heavily regulated sectors. If I also think about the fintech sector that you mentioned, which tends to be heavily regulated, often entrepreneurs tend to focus on areas that are not regulated at all. But recently, regulators have been setting up sandboxes to facilitate this in big hubs. And here I'm thinking about Hong Kong, London, and Singapore. And especially in Singapore, uh, they have encouraged financial innovation through fintech by making institutional improvements and regulatory reforms. Well, and of course, you know, you've been based in Milan and very active in the startup scene there. I'm always very interested in, in hearing how people judge their own home startup scene. So in other words, uh, where do you see the strengths and where do you think that uh, some things could be improved in, in Italy versus the rest of the world right. in terms of startups and uh, building up new businesses? So I'm obviously slightly biased, but uh, what I'm going to say is that 
Uh, Italy has a rich history of creativity in the art, in the arts, in the science and technology. And there is a fantastic education system up to the high school level. So it's not surprising that there are many really good ideas for new businesses. And I've seen plenty in all these different pre-acceleration programs that I managed. Of course, there are also a lot of weaknesses. And in particular, I would say that there is poor support for these ideas and overall an underdeveloped ecosystem. So to be more specific, I would say that the first big problem is that there is not a real big hub for entrepreneurship in Italy. So if you think about San Francisco or London, there are areas where entrepreneurs gather and when there is plenty of support for these entrepreneurs. And this is clearly lacking in Italy. At the same time, Italian startups struggle to obtain funding. And so I've seen many entrepreneurs who actually went abroad to find investors and this is partly the result of a risk-adverse culture, but at the same time, another problem is that entrepreneurs tend to have a vision to create a local business rather than an international one. And so this makes things even more complicated because it makes their business less appealing to investors. But I'm going to end on a positive note by saying that the situation is improving a lot. And so I think that the outlook for the future of the Italian entrepreneurial ecosystem is actually positive because there are many initiatives that try to support entrepreneurship in the country. Great, which is a nice segue to my next question. And uh, I know that you've researched other trends in entrepreneurship like crowdfunding, accelerators and hackathons. And so what is your take on these trends or the tools, especially, for example, hackathons or accelerators? Uh, it looks like there are so many right now that uh, you, you could do this every day of the year, right? So are, are they still useful or how do, if I'm a startup, how do I find the one that is helpful? Yes, this is a great and timely question. Uh, I'll share my experience on what makes Accelerator successful. I would say it's the right kind of support. There is also data from uh, a study conducted by my colleague Susan Cohen, uh, just published in Organization Science that finds that venture participating in some accelerators, they actually do better than other startups in terms of funding, web traffic, and employee growth, for instance. But these positive effects are not universal. So some accelerators either have no effect for entrepreneurs or actually they can even have a negative effect. So the ones that work are the ones that seem to offer the right kind of support, which means that they offer rich opportunities for entrepreneurs to consult qualified instructors, experts, and receive advice and guidance on how to make key decisions for their business. So to answer your second question, are there too many accelerators? I would say that there are not enough accelerators that give the right support and they focus very much on running events or maybe they're showcasing what is called the innovation theater. And so they end up delivering little value for startups. So this suggests that entrepreneurs need to be mindful of the characteristics of the acceleration program that they enter. So let's talk about the one that you are involved with. Like uh, It's called the Hackathon Research Center, I think, right? So what is it about? What are its goals? So the Hackathon Research Center is a fairly recent initiative that was launched last year, thanks to the support of the Strategy Research Foundation. The idea with this project is actually to study hackathons, which, uh, as you probably know, are very short events that represent an opportunity to actually create new ideas, showcase prototypes to an audience of judges or investors. Now, these events have become extremely popular in the last 15 years, but there is very little that we know about them. How do they work? Are they effective? So the goal of the website is really to encourage the academic conversation on this subject 
so that we can understand better how entrepreneurs and corporates can benefit from hackathons. So this is very much work in progress. Right, right. Let's talk about the crowdfunding platforms as well, because there, I talked to some people who I guess they were disappointed. They, they thought if they got to the crowdfunding platform, they're going to raise a lot of money and everything will be, you know, peachy. But mm. uh, then, then they told me basically, look, uh, they had a feeling this was more like a PR game where in any case, you need to build the initial buffer of funding through friends, foods and family or customers. And then you showcase on a crowdfunding platform how successful you are. But uh, if you have zero, you know, don't go to crowdfunding platform because it's unlikely that you, you will get anywhere without at least some sort of a first step. So what is your view on this? How helpful is it or how realistic should people be when they go and raise money through crowdfunding platforms? It's uh, it's a very timely issue again. So I also talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who think about turning to crowdfunding, either equity-based or reward-based in order to raise some funds. I think that there are some advantages to crowdfunding, especially because it represents an opportunity to present a provisional product and you have a direct channel to engage with potential customers. So I think the biggest advantage is that you can obtain, you can obtain early feedback on the product. And then based on this feedback, you can iterate and you have a playground to innovate with your product. Now, if the product is right and you're good at mobilizing a community, so you don't just need to have the right product, then you can raise funds. So a lot of time the projects that are successful on the platform don't necessarily go viral outside of the community of people that contributed to the project. So uh, I would say that uh, running a successful crowdfunding campaign takes a lot of time because entrepreneurs need to be able to build a very strong community. And I've actually analyzed about 70,000 campaigns from Kickstarter, which is the largest crowdfunding platform for creative projects. And what I find is that on Kickstarter, it's obviously much, much easier to raise small amounts of money. So we're talking about $10,000. But there are some cases where the support for projects can be so extreme that the product becomes wildly successful beyond the crowdfunding platforms. And these are the people who make a lot of effort to engage stakeholders even before the campaign starts. So you're right that it takes a lot of time and effort, but that on average, there are very few cases in which crowdfunding campaigns uh, are helpful to to get a project notice beyond the platform itself. I guess I asked you about what you're going to do at Inset. Anything else you're going to do this year? Yes, I have many exciting projects. I'm actually launching two new acceleration programs, one in Hyderabad in India with 1,000 entrepreneurs and another one in Italy, all working with a team of wonderful colleagues. But this time we have to go online. So it's the first time that we're running these programs online and we're obviously doing that this given the constraints of the current situation. And so I'm excited to see uh, how we can support entrepreneurs remotely through online programs. So wish me luck with that. All right. Well, great. Good luck. And uh, one last thing is where can interested parties find out more about you and what you do, find out more about your research or books or activities? So I'm active on LinkedIn, but the best place, to, best place to find updated information is my personal website, www.kiaraspina.com. Great. Well, thank you, Kiara, and good luck at Inset. Thank you, Rudy, and thanks for hosting me on the show. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com 
where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.